Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Ben Johnson and Susan Jabinski discuss bond ETFs. Megan Patchelock talks target date funds for an IRA. Christine Ben shares her tips for earning more on safe money. And lastly, David Harrell and Dave Meets discuss industries and their sensitivity to commodity prices. Let's get started. Here are Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. The Federal Reserve has indicated that it will begin raising interest rates this year. Joining me today to discuss what that may mean for investors in bond ETFs is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Director of Global ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Good to see you. Hi, Susan. Great to see you. So let's start off with a little bit of a backdrop of what's been going on in the bond market so far this year. Well, Susan, as you alluded to, the Fed's telegraphed its intentions to the market. It's indicated that it's going to begin to increase interest rates in March. It's going to pare back its bond buying activity. The market's responded. Yields have gone higher. Bond prices have gone lower as a result. And if you look at where we stand on a year-to-date basis as of February 22, the Morningstar U.S. Core Bond Index was down 3.9% on a year-to-date basis. That's after it slipped 1.6% in 2021. So then how have bond-focused ETFs in particular done? Well, the the short answer to that question, Susan, is it, it depends. If you look at the 535 bond ETFs that exist in Morningstar's U.S. funds database, what you see is that the median return on a year-to-date basis among those funds is minus 3.4%, so about in line with the broad market. But if you take a step back and, and you look at the spread of performance among those 535 funds, the difference between the year-to-date returns for the best-performing bond ETF and the worst-performing bond ETF is nearly 29 percentage points. So not all bond ETFs, (laughs) should be painfully obvious, are created equal. And and what we've seen in terms of how investors have responded is that for the year-to-date, they've withdrawn collectively $2.25 billion from fixed income ETFs. But that said, it's not as though they haven't been allocating at all to fixed income ETFs. So among those ETFs that have seen inflows on a year-to-date basis, collective inflows into those funds have amounted to $36 billion. So there's some withdrawal going on broadly from the category, but there's also some fresh decisions being made at the margin. There's a redirection of some flows. Uh, Some of what we've seen in terms of flow activity uh, remains steady as ever. So ongoing inflows into broadly diversified core bond funds like the iShares uh, Universal Core Bond ETF, IUSB, uh, the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, BND, continuing to gain new flows likely coming from long-term allocators. Uh, Slightly beneath the surface, you see a reallocation away from longer-dated bonds in particular to shorter-dated bonds that face less interest rate risk as investors position themselves for an expectation that rates are going to rise at least through 2022, if, if not beyond. 
So given these expectations, Ben, about interest rate increases, you know, are is it sort of those shorter term bond ETFs that, you know, will more than likely hold up better than others? What should investors be thinking about there? That's absolutely the case. So the less interest rate risk, the better in a rising rate environment, generally speaking, which is why we've seen at the margin much new money that is indeed continuing to go into fixed income ETFs going into those ETFs that focus on the shorter end of the yield curve. We've also seen fresh flows, a spike in flows really, into other categories uh, that help investors position themselves uh, for the potential for rising rates, specifically within the bank loan category, which has gotten a fresh wave of inflows across both ETFs and mutual funds from investors in recent months. Those loans have rates, generally speaking, that tend to reset with rises in in interest rates. And as a result, their interest rate risk is really de minimis. Uh, So the rates will tend to rise uh, subject to certain constraints uh, alongside rises in in key interest rates. Uh, So anytime you see the prospect of uh, rising rates looming on the horizon, it, it's little surprise that you see investors flock in, in this instance in mass uh, to bank loan ETFs and, and bank loan mutual funds more generally. So then lastly, Ben, you know, given this backdrop of rising rates, do you have a, a couple of ETFs that investors might consider today for those portfolio roles in, in their portfolio? Well, there's a pair of sibling ETFs that have been longtime favorites of ours, both of which are actually actively managed. And that's the PIMCO Enhanced Short Maturity ETF. The ticker for that fund is MINT. And its close cousin, a more recent entrant into the space, it's ESG Intentional Variant. Uh, The ticker for that fund is EMNT. Both of these funds receive a Morningstar Analyst Rating of Gold. And that rating is based on uh, a solid parent firm in, in PIMCO, a solid team, great people behind this portfolio in Jerome Schneider and team who have helmed this fund uh, in the case of MINT since its inception, have done so capably, have delivered terrific performance for investors, uh, both relative to the category and the category index. And we have confidence that they'll continue to do so well into the future. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your perspective on the bond market today and giving us a couple of ideas that we might turn to for our bond allocations. We appreciate it. Well, thank you again for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Megan Patchlock from Morningstar Research Services discusses target date funds. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Investors have until April 18th to make an IRA contribution if they want that contribution to count for tax year 2021. Should you consider a target date fund for your IRA? Perhaps you should. Joining me today to talk about how target date funds can work within IRAs and to share a few of her favorite target date series is Megan Pachalak. Megan is an analyst with Morningstar's multi-asset manager research team. Hi, Megan. Good to see you. 
Hi, Susan. Good to be here. So let's start out with a little bit of a definition of what a target date fund is and how it works. Right. So a target date fund is designed to be a hands-off investment solution for investors to save for retirement. And typically they start out with um, mostly equities within their portfolio. And as you get closer and closer to your target retirement date, they'll become a little bit more conservative by adding bonds into the portfolio. So then why are target date funds something that people should be thinking about, perhaps for an IRA? Why are they good choices for that tax-deferred wrapper? So for both um, a Roth and a traditional IRA, they provide a tax advantage for investors that are saving for retirement. While that target date fund allows those investors to have a more hands-off um, solution that they don't really have to build, monitor, or re rebalance because the portfolio manager is really taking care of those steps. So then who might a target date fund be a, a better fit for? What type of investor? Um, typically for an investor that doesn't have that much time to spend looking at their portfolio um, because they're kind of offloading it to their um, portfolio manager. So now Morningstar rates target date series and target date funds, and you're very involved in that process. So if an investor is looking at a couple of different target date funds and, and considering them for an IRA, what are the types of things he or she should be looking at? So when you're making any sort of investment decision, the cost should definitely be a, a big factor that you're looking at, and target date funds are no exception. Um, for the most part, they are reasonably priced, especially if you're thinking that they're your entire portfolio. Um, and typically, um, the, the price is driven by the underlying funds that are included within a series. So if you have a series that has all index funds, they tend to be on the cheaper end of the spectrum. Whereas on the other side, if you have one that invests in all active funds, they tend to be a little bit more expensive. Um, we have found that those plans that have a healthy balance of both tend to find the middle road too. Um, the other important consideration when you're looking at a target date fund is how much risk they're taking at that target retirement date. Because essentially there, um, the investor's retirement savings will hit, have hit a peak because from that point, they won't really be making any more contributions. Instead, they'll be switching to withdrawals and their investment time horizon is a bit shorter. So they don't have as much time to make up for any market drawdowns. And so um, finding a nice um, target date fund that has an appropriate, appropriate risk level um, is another strong consideration because although most of them have about an average of 40% in equities, it can really range from below 20% to up to 55%. So then let's talk a little bit specifically about a few target date series that Morningstar thinks highly of. Um, the first one that we're going to talk about has been a little bit in the news lately, and it's from Vanguard. And um, it re recently made a pretty large capital gains distribution. And that took some investors who held the target date series and taxable accounts a little bit off guard. So talk a little bit about what happened there. Right. So in December of 2020, Vanguard actually reduced the minimum investment level needed for their institutional share class to 5 million from 100 million. That large reduction made a lot more investors eligible for the cheaper share class. Um, unfortunately, in 2015, when Vanguard launched the institutional share, they launched it as a separate mutual fund rather than a new share class. So when plans were selling out of the investor share class and buying into the institutional share class, 
it triggered a surprisingly larger capital gains distribution. But again, that only affected those in a taxable account. If you held your target date in an IRA, you wouldn't have been subject to that tax. So again, it seems like this experience with this, with this large distribution only adds to the argument in favor of keeping uh, target date funds and target date strategies in some sort of tax deferred account, like an IRA or a, or a 401k, right? That's right, Susan. So Megan, let's talk some specifics about this Vanguard uh, target date series. It's an all index fund series. Tell us what you like about it. So the Vanguard target retirement series is a low cost option. Um, it's actually one of the lowest um, priced target date funds um, in the industry. And it invests in global broad market indexes. So it's really covering all of its bases there. Um, and it's really simple and easy for an investor to understand. Um, so the simplicity of it coupled with its low cost makes it a great option for an average investor. And your second idea today is invests in strictly actively managed strategies, and that's T. Rowe Price Retirement. That's right. So T. Rowe Price Retirement um, is an all-active series, and it's managed by one of the top teams um, in asset allocation research and execution. Um, and at the onset of the glide path, it is um, a little bit more aggressive. It has about 98% in equities at that point. Um, but we have a lot of confidence in the underlying stock pickers and the equity funds that they're using. Um, in terms of their bond portfolio, it is a little bit more adventurous. Um, but historically, the bond funds have bounced back from market drawdowns. So we think if an investor is able to stick with that volatility, it should lead to long-term success. And then your last idea today sort of blends active strategies with passive strategies, and it's PIMCO Real Path Blend. Tell us about it. That's right. So PIMCO Real Path Blend does a great job of showing that it doesn't have to be all or nothing, and it balances um, the an index indexes funds as well as active funds. So their equity exposure is all through Vanguard equity index funds, while their bond portfolio is through their in-house active bond funds. Um, and we really think that that's a smart match in setting up investors for success. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. You've given us some food for thought when it comes to target date funds in an IRA and a few good series to check out. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Next, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. shares her tips to earn more on safe money. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky from Morningstar. The Federal Reserve has indicated that it's planning to begin raising interest rates starting in March, but savers are still stuck with some pretty low returns. Joining me to discuss whether it's even possible to earn a higher return on your safe money is Christine Benz. Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Nice to see you, Christine. Susan, great to see you. So let's talk a little bit about what's, what's going on in the bond and cash market. You know, bond yields have been going up, but cash yields have been pretty stubbornly low. What's going on there? Well, one of the key factors is that during this pandemic, savings rates in the U.S. have really stepped up. And so savings institutions like banks have found their coffers pretty full. They haven't needed to raise the interest rates that they're paying on savings accounts in order to entice savers to entrust new money to them. So that's part of the issue is that banks just haven't felt the pressure to lift interest rates. And that's been a real headwind for savers during this period. 
So for those, those savers who may be looking for, you know, new places that might give them a little bit more yield on their safe money, what are the types of things that they should be thinking through? What are the issues around that? Right. I think one of the key questions is how much safety do you need? So do you need a guarantee that your money will be there or are you willing to take a little bit of risk in exchange for a higher payout? If the answer is I don't want to take any risk at all, well, then you should stick with FDIC insured investment products where you typically will have to settle for a lower yield in exchange for those guarantees. On the other hand, you may be able to pick out pick up a slightly higher payout by being willing to forego those guarantees. And then I think another key element here, Susan, is whether you need liquidity and how much liquidity you need. So do you need to be able to have ready access to your cash or can you sock it away for six months or a year or even more? Typically, if you are able to forego some of that liquidity, you can pick up a higher interest rate. And the main sort of category there to consider would be CDs. So if we look at two-year CDs today, for example, these are certificates of deposit, you can find interest rates well over 1% per year. But the trade-off is that you would not have ready access to your funds. You'd often have times have a penalty if you needed to crack into that money early. Oftentimes when people talk about safe money, they're sort of using that interchangeably with this is my liquid money. This is money that I may need to fund near-term expenditures. So keep liquidity in mind and use that to help direct where you go. And then how do credit unions fit in here? Well, really interesting, Susan, in that credit unions oftentimes do offer pretty competitive payouts relative to what you might get from commercial banks. And the key reason is that uh, credit unions don't do marketing. They oftentimes don't have bricks and mortar locations. So they're able to keep their expenses down. That allows them to be pretty competitive in terms of savings rates and also bar rates that they extend to borrowers. So this is something that you should check out if you're in the market for savings opportunities. The lift that you might get in terms of the interest that you receive isn't uh, especially great, but it's still worth investigating, especially if you're saving a nice chunk of change. So I would look at the um, National Credit Union Association. They have a nice sort of uh, credit union finder that you can search on credit unions based on your geographic locale and other factors. That's definitely something to check out for savers. And then what about reaching for high yields, for higher yield through bonds, maybe, you know, a short-term bond fund or an intermediate term bond fund? What should investors be sort of thinking about there or even a floating rate fund? Is that something to really think about for safe money? Well, I think you want to tread carefully as you move into bonds and understand that there is the uh, possibility of principal loss with these products. But I, here I think time horizon can be really instructive in terms of deciding what to do. So if you have a very short time horizon of, of less than a year, for example, I would absolutely stick with cash. On the other hand, if you have a slightly longer time horizon, I think a high quality short-term bond fund is probably okay. You might have some modest principal baubles, but um, you probably will have the opportunity to pick up a slightly higher yield. When we look at the performance of high quality short-term bond funds over 
history, we see that over one-year periods, they have losses uh, roughly 6% of the time, and those losses are in the neighborhood of 2%. So that suggests that if you have a time horizon of at least a year, you might have some losses in a short-term bond fund, but they probably won't be very deep or very frequent. Uh, and you may be able to earn a higher yield. Intermediate term bonds, I think you obviously would wanna have a longer time horizon of more like three years or longer, um, because similarly, when we look at rolling three-year periods, we see that intermediate term high quality funds, not the core plus bond funds, but the, the intermediate term core, bond funds have a pretty low probability of having losses over a three-year period, and to the extent that they might have those losses, they'd be pretty shallow as well. You mentioned floating rate investment products, Susan. I think that people are attracted to these products in part because they can be um, see boosts in their yields actually when interest rates are going up as they have been doing. But the trade-off is that they're really credit sensitive. They're sensitive to what's going on in the economy and in the stock market. So I wouldn't recommend them for anyone's safe assets. In fact, in my model, bucket portfolios, I hold floating rate products in the bucket three, which is kind of your risky equity uh, bucket where you're having a nice long time horizon for that portion of your money. And lastly, Christine, you say that it's important to sort of not just limit the thinking about safe investments to your investment portfolio. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that you want to look at your total opportunity set. So for a lot of people, they do have some sort of loans with an interest rate attached to them. And I think you can think of paying down those loans as akin to a safe return on your money. In fact, it's kind of a guaranteed return on your money. So even if you have a nice low mortgage rate, for example, and you're looking for other safe things to do with your funds and you don't have that imminent liquidity need, that debt pay down, I think, can be a really smart answer. And of course, your need for safe investments really depends on your own situation. I would say that for young folks, who happen to have mortgages, that's probably not the best return on their funds. But for people inching closer to retirement who want to try to uh, kind of embellish their peace of mind investments, I think that putting money toward the mortgage pay down can make a lot of sense. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today. These are really insightful ideas for us to be thinking about when it comes to our safe investments. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Lastly, here is David Harrell from Morningstar Investment Management with Dave Meads from Morningstar Research Services. Please note that the following discussion was recorded on February 23, 2022, prior to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Dave Meads' analysis of the long-term impact on the world's oil supply, as well as the prospects for oil embargoes and sanctions against the importation of Russian oil, remains unchanged. However, we want to acknowledge that events, which include the loss of human life, have progressed far beyond the situation that existed prior to the invasion. You know, obviously the energy sector as a whole is not homogenous, and within it you have different industries that have varying levels of sensitivity to commodity prices. Could you elaborate on that a little? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, the companies that I follow, the E&P companies, they're the ones that extract and sell the commodity. So they're they're selling the commodity price. It's pretty clear if the commodity goes up, then uh, so does their revenue. Um, and, and that makes them uh, very sensitive to those commodity prices. But if you look at the other segments in the industry, midstream would be an example. That's mainly the pipeline operators that are responsible for transporting the crude from the well side to the refinery. Um, and those midstream pipeline operators take tolls for shipping. So the, the, the revenue there, it's based on the volume, not on the commodity price. So commodity price goes up in the short run, not much impact on the volume. They're not immune to commodity prices because the longer that commodity prices are high or low, the more likely it is that the ENPs will ship more or less. Um, but they're a little set back from, from the exposure to commodities directly. Uh, and then if you think about the oil service industry, they, uh, their, their, their business model involves supporting the ENP companies in the drilling process. Um, and the capital that the ENPs spend on drilling, that's the revenue for the oil service companies. So if you have very high oil prices for a very long period of time, then eventually the the um, the ENP companies will change their capital habits. If oil prices are very high, they'll increase their capital and, and vice versa. So um, oil food service revenues are sensitive to commodity prices, but it's a second derivative and it, and it takes time to, to really manifest. And then uh, I guess the last portion of the, of the industry to consider is the refiners. The refiners mm. um, will see higher crude prices as higher input costs because they uh, effectively buy crude and turn it into petroleum products. So they will make a profit based on the spread between the crude price and the petroleum product price. So higher crude prices will be a higher input cost for them, but they're able to pass that through. The petroleum product prices will increase as well. So they're not as sensitive to, um, to, to, to commodity prices. So big range, but the most sensitive is, is gonna be the ENPs. Okay, and, the, and, and that's the reason we're starting to see this trend in the ENP companies towards of variable dividends because of that sensitivity to commodity prices, correct? Yeah, I think that's true. I, if you're the uh, the, the CEO, CFO of a, an E&P company, then you, you have a problem because you know that shareholders want to see uh, returns of capital. Um, right. But if you if you raise up the, um, the, the the fixed dividend to provide that return, oil prices being very cyclical, sooner or later you're going to find yourself in a in a down cycle, and in that down cycle, um, your operating cash flow probably isn't going to be sufficient. To, uh, to, to fund that fixed dividend. And that's an awkward situation. You can either cut your dividend, which sends a really um, unpleasant signal to the market, or you can lean on the balance sheet if, if, uh, if your leverage allows it, if you have the liquidity, um, or you can rely on the capital markets. And really none of those things is ideal. Um, but then the, the, the converse situation is to have a low um, fixed dividend and, and not take that risk, but then the market will perceive your um, uh, income potential as lower. So what these companies are trying to do is find a, uh, find a happy medium. So some are doing that by um, special dividends. When you have the cash flow every now and again, um, announce a, uh, a surprise one-off payment to the market. The downside there is it's not very predictable um, mm-hmm. or transparent. So the, uh, it's questionable whether the, the market really gives them any credit for doing that. And then the, the, another solution is to, to pay a variable dividend, which involves paying a fixed percentage of your cash flow 
um, every quarter. So oil prices are high, you got lots of cash flow. So the, um, the, the, the percentage of that will be higher, the variable uh, payout to the shareholders will be higher. But then when uh, in, in the lean times, when commodity prices are lower, you have lower cash flows. So you're, you're, as you're only paying a smaller percentage of that year, you're uh, automatically reducing your payout and protecting your balance sheet during the down cycle. Got it. And you, and you think that this approach actually makes sense for the E&P industry as a whole, correct? I do. Um, it, it's pretty clear that, um, that that the market wants to see this industry return capital to shareholders. Uh, I, I kind of see it as uh, an analogy to um, the, the big tobacco industry in the late 90s after the, the master settlement agreement, where these companies were saying, okay, we're in a sin industry um, and we're facing a long-term secular decline for our product. But by being disciplined with our capital allocation, we're able to um, generate substantial cash flows in spite of that long-term secular decline. Um, and uh, the, the value proposition is clearly no longer growth if you have a, a long-term secular decline. But the income component can be significant if, uh, if those companies are capable of generating the cash flow. And I think the, the oil companies are trying to go the same way. They have this problem of trying to figure out how do we show that we have the potential to return significant cash to shareholders, but not run into, into difficult times during the, the commodity down cycles. And I think the variable dividend mechanism makes a ton of sense. Got it. And, and certainly from income-focused shareholders, it means, like you said, without it, uh, the dividend rate would probably be low to be conservative. So this way they're getting more dividend dollars than they would otherwise without that variable yeah, component. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.